What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boon people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present, and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Rachel McFarlane. Rachel is the Director of Education Services at Hearts for Learning, working with an enormous number of schools and school leaders across Hertfordshire in England. Rachel has been the principal of three different schools, and she shares her wisdom about school leadership and education more generally in her fantastic new book, Obstetrics for Schools, Eliminating Failure and Ensuring the Safe Delivery of All Learners. Rachel has had an enormous impact on education in the UK, and her clarity of vision, commitment, and ability to just get things done is absolutely phenomenal. Rachel is a true inspiration when it comes to providing the kind of holistic education for students that so many of us aspire to do, and I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing some of her insights about how to do this within this podcast. Additionally, this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. This month, I wanted to again feature the book, The Goldilocks Map, by Andrew C. Watson. The last 20 years of research into the area of cognitive science has revealed fresh, surprising, and useful insights into how and why our students learn. However, the last 20 years and beyond has also seen a proliferation of dubious advice, lots of instructional recommendations that claim to be based on cognitive science, but are actually misleading or trumped up claims. So how is the average teacher supposed to navigate this tricky territory? Well, this is the topic of the Goldilocks map. And this book offers a specific and practical approach to critically examining sources, research, and ourselves as teachers in order to develop the skills necessary to be effective research skeptics. It's been endorsed by some experts in the field whose work I've enjoyed and appreciated in the past and is well worth a look. If you can to get your hands on the Goldilocks map or any other John Cat book for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERRR30 at checkout. That code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William has referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. It also works for other recent books by John Cat Education, like Fear is the Mind Killer by James Mannion and Kate McAllister, and Walkthroughs by Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli. And if you're looking for advice on behaviour management, Tom Bennett's Running the Room is well worth a look also. Again, for 30% off any JCE book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. Also of note is that there's now a way to order a signed copy of my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. To check that out, just go to ollielovell.com forward slash book and follow the prompts from there. There's even a way for you to specify the exact message that you'd like me to write to you in the front of your very own signed copy. Again, find that link at ollielovell.com forward slash book. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 55 of the ERRR podcast with Rachel McFarlane. Rachel McFarlane, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our chat. Wonderful. Rachel, the first question we ask people is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Rachel, what is it that you do? What's your answer? 
I lead a team of around 100 consultants and advisors who work in schools with teachers and with leaders right through from early year settings, primary schools, secondary schools, mainstream and special schools to support in affecting school improvement. It's the best job in the world after being a head teacher. <laughs> nice. And that's a lot of responsibility as well. It is, but I have directors and team leaders who work with me and, and to me. So it's very well distributed. Wonderful. Now, could you give us a little information about how you came to write the book about which we're talking today? And that, the title for that book for listeners is Obstetrics for Schools, Eliminating Failure and Ensuring the Safe Delivery of All Learners. How, how did you come to this book, the title uh, and, and the idea more generally? So the idea behind the book is that we have an issue, certainly within the UK and I suspect internationally, that many of our learners in school leave or pass out of the schooling system marked as failures because they haven't passed the standardised tests that are prescribed within the jurisdiction in which they're, they're educated. And we know that there is an over-representation of disadvantaged youngsters and youngsters from backgrounds with protected characteristics within that sort of overall failure rate. And I've been a teacher and a leader in schools for sort of over 30 years in the UK and have always been passionately determined to make sure that that failure rate is as, as small as possible to eliminate failure. And therefore, always been an advocate for those children who come from groups that tend to be overrepresented within that failure rate. And the title is a, is a strange one. I suppose I partly picked it so that it would stand out and that it would pique interest and, and encourage debate. So why the analogy you know, with medicine? Well, it, I got thinking about failure rates within medicine and particularly thinking about safe delivery of children and, and the comparisons between the education sector and medicine. And thinking that you know, if you were running a, an obstetrics ward looking at safe delivery of babies in a hospital and you had a situation where approximately a third of, of new births resulted in failure, result, resulted in mortality, that would be an absolutely catastrophic international scandal if you know, there were any hospital in the developed world that had that sort of success rate or failure rate. It would attract you know, multimedia scrutiny and lead to heads rolling quite rightly and, and radical changes. And yet we have a situation in education, certainly in the UK, where that just almost seems to be accepted as normal and natural and is sort of endemic. And of course, we, we now have in, in the UK a mortality rate, an infant mortality rate of, of less than 1%. And even globally, it's less than 5%. But that wasn't always the case. Relatively recently, you know, only 200 years ago, the infant mortality rate globally was almost 50%. It was about 43%. It took 150 years for it to be halved. But then since, since 1950, it's come right down to, you know, the very, very rare occasional tragic exceptions where, you know, a mum goes into hospital and either she doesn't survive or the baby doesn't survive. So if we can if we can eliminate effectively failure within the medical system through better knowledge, research, more targeted support, uh, then why can't we do that within education? And I firmly believe we can do it within education. We have all the knowledge. We have the research around what makes great teaching and learning. We have the knowledge about what sort of interventions work best. We know what type of learners are the most vulnerable. So we should be targeting our support proportionally to make sure that we, we eliminate failure as, as much as it's possible. There probably will always be a tiny, tiny percentage of children who, because of you know, particular special educational needs around you know, cognitive delay, might not 
be able within the sort of normal schooling years to achieve the levels of literacy and numeracy that we would expect to be the normal sort of passport or gateway into success in later life. But we should be down in the one or two percents. We shouldn't be around about the 30 percent mark where we are currently. Mm. No, it's a it's a powerful vision and hopefully it doesn't take us 200, 200 years to get there, Rachel, like it did with medicine. Absolutely. I want to see it in my lifetime. <laughs> That'd be ideal. Now, you talked a lot about success and failure then, but in your book, you actually also really broaden it out, not just to these kind of academic pursuits, but a lot more broadly. So I wanted to give us a chance just to touch on that now and ask you a question that we often ask at the start of the podcast, and that is, what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? So I think it's a broad purpose. And I had the opportunity when I opened a new school um, nearly 10 years ago and had a year's sort of set up and planning time to really consider this in a lot of detail. And I read a lot and I went around um, the UK and the US looking at different schooling systems and really challenged myself around this question. And to me, it's a sort of tripartite answer. I think it's really important that education equips young people with knowledge and subject skills. And I think that's vital, not least because it equips people with a sense of worth and self-esteem, which then they're protected with and they take with them into later life. And it it creates a sort of armour and resilience and a sense of entitlement that if it's distributed amongst all learners, helps with social mobility and, and equity. But I also think that alongside imparting knowledge has to be a development of skills and dispositions, habits of being an effective learner, a self-starting and self-regulating learner, so that we're not creating a sort of spoon-feeding reliance model of education where children come out of school and then flounder because they've been taught a lot of stuff, but they can't teach themselves more stuff. uh, And they're not going to be able to navigate all the learning challenges that they face in their lives. And I don't just mean within further education. I mean, you know, when they start a new job, or when they embark on a relationship or when they have to cope with a, a bereavement or, um, or, or redundancy. So to me, I measured success as a leader, not just by children leaving school with hatfuls of top grades in their, in their public exams, but by knowing that they were equipped with the whole toolkit of skills and dispositions that would mean that they were a fully fledged autonomous, you know, self-starter as, as a learner. And then there's the third part, which is equally important, which is around character formation. And to me, there's no point in educating children to be able to succeed academically if we're not educating them to contribute positively to the world and to society, you know, their local society and, and the global society. And I would often say to my staff at Isaac Newton Academy, my last school um, before I came into my present job, we want our children to be recognisable, not just by their qualifications and their learning skills, but by their behaviours. And we want young people in Ilford, the area where my school was in East London, to be recognisable by the way they greet people on the street, the way they step off the, the sidewalk for you know, a parent with a pushchair, the way they help an elderly person across the road. It's by just their behaviour and their moral compass that, that we, we mark our character on them. Yeah, that's really wonderful. So you've mentioned Isaac Newton Academy. Could you could you give us a little bit of an introduction to this this school, which is re- the book is formed around in many ways, and maybe just a little bit about your kind of career and your development as an educator in leading up to you taking that position. Absolutely. So I took up the headship of Isaac Newton Academy, which is an all through school educating children from age four up to eighteen. When um, in in the UK, children then go on to university. 
back in 2011. I had a set-up year and the school opened in 2012. Prior to that, I'd had two headships, one just outside London in a suburban town um, called St Albans, but the other very near to um, Isaac Newton Academy in East London in an area called Walthamstow. And that was the sort of culmination of a 30-year teaching career in all sorts of parts of London, but mainly inner city, serving populations that were hugely sort of disparate and pluralistic in terms of socioeconomic demographic, but also ethnicities and religions and um, just really sort of mixed intakes, which is the sort of environment in which, you know, I I think really, really exciting things happen and, and, and which I sort of found myself and really enjoyed being. So when I was lucky enough to secure the headship of the new school, Isaac Newton, I'd already been ahead for nine years in two different contexts and had a lot of opportunity to, I suppose, learn the craft of leadership which wasn't to say that I didn't still have a lot to learn. And the challenges um, of opening a new school are huge, just as the opportunities are enormous as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, you started with a really, really strong vision there for Isaac Newton, and, and it links back to the purpose of education. Did you, and you, you kind of instantiated or consolidated it within a vision statement Absolutely. for Isaac Newton Academy. Could, could you share that vision statement with us? Yeah. So the vision statement for the school was, our aim is to equip every student with the knowledge, the learning power and the character necessary for success at university and beyond. And and that's just indelibly sort of inside my brain. As I always said to the staff at the school, it needs to be sort of indelibly inside your brain. So the mark of how united and committed we are to our vision is that, you know, anybody could stop us in the school from, you know, myself to a, a newly qualified teacher to a deputy head teacher to a member of the admin team to a member of the catering team and say what's this school about and we would all give the same uniform response and we would all be able to then extrapolate on that and explain what that meant and for one small sentence that took an inordinate amount of time to sort of to conceive and fine-tune and in the early days of setting up the academy it was literally myself and the chair of governors sitting down at a series of meetings and talking about we've got this amazing opportunity what are we trying to do what's the vision for this school and how can we articulate it in a short mission statement that really sums up what we're about and what our beliefs and aspirations are for the school community and we argued over every single word and nuance and order of of that sentence and now sort of nearly 10 years later I still feel that it stood the test of time, but I always think the vision statements need regular review and refresh and revisiting. And if I was still at the school now, and it's um, three and a bit years since uh, since I moved on to my current role, I might I'd certainly be encouraging a, you know a, a review of that, and potentially might be arguing and advocating for a slight refresh of the words. It obviously has the you know the tripartite element of the vision that I talked about earlier: the knowledge, the learning power, and the character. But the other bit of it was, you know, for success at university and beyond. And that was sometimes seen as a slightly contentious element of the mission statement, because some people would say, are you saying that everybody should be aspiring to go to university? Are you saying that university is the gold standard and anything else, you know, is is second best? Um, You know, why is university mentioned within the statement? And my response to that would always be, I don't think university is the only route to a a great kind of step after school. 
there are all sorts of other alternatives, fantastic career-based apprenticeships, you know, the opportunity to go off to a football academy or a, or a ballet school or, you know, a, a great sort of exciting career. But I want everybody who's educated at the school to leave with the skills and the qualifications that they've got the choice. I think every young person should have the opportunity to choose whether they want to go on to university, because we know certainly in the UK that university opens up doors to all sorts of other things. And it's absolutely fine and right and to be celebrated that some people choose not to progress on to university, but everybody should have that choice. But the bit about and beyond was really the most important thing, because, you know, what we're doing as educators is clearly educating children for, you know, what are hopefully going to be really long and and prosperous and, and fulfilling lives, you know, beyond formal education. Yeah, that's great. And that's a really good way of framing that, having that option to choose to go to university, I think is really powerful. One of the reasons why I was really excited to speak with you today, Rachel, is because because of this kind of these three threads that run through everything. So, you know, I asked you at the start, what do you think is the purpose should be the purpose of school-based education? And you offered this tripartite framework. Then we talk about what's the vision of the Isaac Newton Academy and you talk about the tripartite framework. And then, you know, we're actually going to use that as a, a framework for today's discussion because what you shared in the book about what actually happened at the academy in the, the years that followed the, its, its commencement fell very nicely into that tripartite framework. Which was wonderful. I mean, I was I was actually on a walk with one of my good friends, Baz, on um, on Sunday. We used to work at the same school. Now we're different. We haven't hadn't catch, caught up for a while. And we were walking along, and he said, "Oh, I've been listening to your podcast recently, Ollie. And I, I noticed, you know, you always ask people at the start what do they think should be the purpose of school based education. And often they offer they offer this like kind of lofty answer that talks about you know skills and learning dispositions and preparation for life and citizenship. But then. The, the interview continues and it sounds like what they actually do, it's, it's not that clear how that actually leads to their, or how that connects. Like there's this disconnect between their lofty goals and, and what they say they actually do and what they support teachers to do. So I'm actually really excited, hopefully Baz is listening to this one, that, you know, you're someone who's, who's taken the time and the effort to actually connect that vision and that big picture with the day-to-day practice. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that to start off with and say I'm really excited to, to dive into these three areas even more. Thank you. And hopefully, Baz, I won't disappoint you. All right. Here we go. All right. So we're jumping into knowledge, the first of the three parts of the tripartite framework. But actually, before we do that, we have to address what you call the elephant in the room. And that this is really where you start your book. So can you, can you tell us what is the elephant in the room, Rachel? So the elephant in the room is the uncomfortable truth that there are actually a lot of people and a worrying amount of them within the education system who don't have an absolutely unswerving belief in the potential of every young person to achieve remarkable outcomes. And that's a really hard thing to say. And I'm not saying that those people are bad people, but I think they've just grown up in a society which has accepted failure, has accepted unequal endpoints resulting from unequal starting points, and who perhaps just haven't questioned whether that should be the case. It goes back to, the, you know, should there be a third failure rate? And I think we see it in schools, and, and I've seen it in schools over, you know, more than three decades. And I, I taught predominantly in really strong, well-run, Ofsted-graded, you know, outstanding or good schools. But we see conversations, or we hear conversations in the staff room where people just casually say things like, oh, she's not very good at maths, or I was teaching my low ability science students, or they're never going to get a pass grade in X subject. 
And those conversations speak to the fact that people have fixed mindsets about the potential of children based on their prior experience, you know, the grades and the, um, the, the skills that they come into the school with. And they're probably totally subconsciously putting, you know, glass ceilings on their expectation. And until we really explore why those unconscious biases exist and challenge them and have the uncomfortable conversations about why should we believe that intelligence isn't completely malleable and our, our outcomes and our eventual achievements in life are not determined by some sort of IQ stamp on our forehead as we as we come out of the womb, then we're not going to be able to sort of, you know, crack this this terrible sort of stubborn failure rate. But we have to believe that the brain is like a muscle. It's capable of infinite growth. It just needs like a plant, sort of good watering and nurturing and care. And in the right conditions with the right teaching and the right purposeful practice and uh, the building of self-esteem, every child is capable of remarkable things, regardless of how disrupted their prior life experience might have been or, you know, what learning challenges they've had. And if we are really smart about finding the key to unlocking each individual child's barriers, then we have to believe that, that everybody can achieve at great, at great levels. Hmm. That's wonderful. I mean, it's such it's such an insidious thing in schools. I remember starting teaching myself with a really acute a real acute awareness of the language that teachers were using and the ways that they were describing students. But I actually found as I was kind of swallowed up by that culture, I started to fall prey to some of these things myself. And you know, five years or so into my career, I I really had to stop and think, you know. What kind of a teacher have I become? How am I talking about students? And what would first year Ollie think about the way that fifth year Ollie is talking now? So when you when you set out with this new school and you thought, I need to address this elephant in the room, I need to make sure that the way we talk about students always embodies that, that growth mindset and that belief um, that they can all achieve, what did you practically put in place? What did you actually do to ensure that that elephant in the room was addressed? Okay. I had a huge advantage in that I was building a school from scratch. So the starting point was recruiting the staff who were going to work in the school. And I thought really hard about what text and preamble would go into the recruitment pack for every post that we advertised for. And it was unashamedly around this vision. And it referenced the writings of people like Carol Dweck and Growth Mindset. And it talked really blatantly about the fact that at this school, we believe in the potential of every child to achieve. And we're going to set ourselves targets that are hugely aspirational. And we're going to make sure that we, we reach them. And almost sort of saying, only apply for a post in this school if, if you believe in this and you want to buy in for this. And it's OK if you think this is absolutely nuts, but then probably this isn't the environment for you. Mm. And then at interview, I would ask staff and I interviewed every member of staff myself, specific questions around growth mindset, around their belief in the potential of all children, around previous targets that they'd set themselves and their learners if they were experienced teachers, around how they coped with and felt about failure and whether they saw it as a learning challenge. Just a whole range of questions that would really elicit what was truly at sort of the heart of, of their beliefs. What exactly did you ask, if you, if you can remember any of those questions? So questions like, when you hear somebody talking about a child as low ability, how does that make you feel? What do you do? Uh, what language would you use instead? So questions like, if I was interviewing for a head of English position, what percentage of the founding cohort would you imagine would 
come through the exam system with, you know, a strong pass grade. And if they said 60 percent, I'd say, really, you think 40 percent are going to fail after you've been educating them for five years? <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, so so, yeah, just a whole range of questions. It would obviously vary depending on um, depending on the post. If I was interviewing for a, a member of the administrative staff, I might say, you've read our vision. You know that we're all about you know building self-esteem and belief in all learners. How will you contribute to that as a member of the front office reception team or a member of the premises team? Because it had to be everybody's responsibility. Everybody had to feel they had a part to play in it. And then it was about training. So I was hugely fortunate that when I'd formed my founding staff team before the school opened, we were a team of about 35 people with, with operational staff and teaching staff combined. I secured uh, Matthew Syed to come and talk to that group. Now, your, your listeners might not have heard of Matthew Syed. He was a, a UK table tennis champion, a European champion. And he wrote after his sporting career had finished, and he's become a sort of a, a commentator, journalist and pundit now, an amazing book called Bounce, The, the Power of Practice and, the, and the, the Myth of Talent. And he gave all sorts of examples from the sporting world and the world of music and chess and all sorts of other areas of the power of practice and the fact that, you know, growth mindset enables us to do the most remarkable things. He's also a great speaker and orator, and he came and delivered a session which really ensured there was that you know passion and fire in the belly of, of all of the founding staff team and then we just continue to deliver training year on year as more staff joined the academy and to ensure that we shared reading and research around the importance of growth mindset but also that school vision was at the front of every single policy that we devised it was in the students um, organizers or pupil planners it was displayed prominently um, all around the school it was referenced in all our key talks so we used it if you like as a sort of marker every time we had to make a key decision about how we were going to develop or what we were going to invest money in we'd always go back to that vision and say is this going to help us to achieve our tripartite mission is this aligned to our belief in growth mindset so we just always took ourselves back to that as our core purpose and made sure that we didn't deviate from our mission and then the other thing which sounds like a tiny thing but it was absolutely hugely significant was saying we're going to totally ban words which are associated with fixed mindset in this school so we're never going to use the word ability to describe a learner. Um, we'll talk about their current attainment levels. Of course, it's really important we know how well they're performing and attaining and that we share that information with the learners and with their parents and carers. But we'll never describe it as their ability, because if we talk about somebody being a low ability maths child, we're absolutely sort of condemning them and, and conveying a message that we really don't believe they can be anything other than that. Um, and when you start to make a pledge to avoid using a word like ability or able or all the derivations of it, you realise just how invidious a word like that is, how it just permeates all sorts of sort of arenas. And it's a bit like sort of introducing a swear box. You can make yourself a fortune, you know, if you if you penalise everybody every time they use it. We, we didn't financially penalise them. I sort of half wish we had. We'd never had any budgetary problems in the early days. But, you know, initially, after we'd pledged that we weren't going to describe people's attainment levels using the word ability. We, we were having to pick each other up all the time. But very quickly, we got into the habits and, and good behaviours so that it became 
then a case of if somebody used the word ability, everybody sort of winced. It was like, you know, fingernails down a blackboard. Or if somebody came into the school and gave a talk who wasn't part of the community and started talking about, you know, the most able pupils, you'd see children in the assembly hall looking at each other as if to say, they've just sworn, you know, what are you going to do about it? And we would sort of nicely pick them up and say, actually, we don't use that language in this school. So you even talk explicitly to the students, like we don't use the word ability. Yeah, right. Oh, totally. And parents. So we would run every year, we would run a assemblies more than once and we would run parents workshops where we would talk about what growth mindset is how it affects the way that we do things at the school why we use certain language and why we don't use other terms and and really asking for parents support as well and training them so that they were advocates and champions of growth mindset and we would encourage parents to praise and recognize effort rather than praise and recognise achievements. So, you know, rather than saying to your five-year-old son, oh, you're really smart, you're really clever, say, you've done really well at that activity, or I can see you've really developed in, so that we were developing resilient learners rather than brittle learners. Mm. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Now, so that's the first step of kind of building that knowledge, is having the belief that it can actually build irrespective of who the learner is. Yeah, love that. Now, the next thing I'd love to touch on is where that actually got you to, right? So, could you paint a little bit of a picture of the kind of students that came to Isaac Newton Academy and the results that you managed to get um, with those students? Of course. So, when the school opened, it was a secondary school. So, we received our first cohort of children aged 11 and they'd come from local primary schools. Two years later, we opened the primary phase and then we were taking four-year-olds from local nurseries or direct from their families. And it was a hugely diverse catchment area. The children came very much from the local area, which is a very highly populated area. So most children came from about a half a mile radius from around the school. It was a really multifarious catchment in terms of ethnicity. So we had a majority of Asian students from backgrounds uh, primarily from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. But we had a, a quite a sizable black population as well, mainly black African, but a few black Caribbean. And then a very small white population, some of whom were white British, but many of whom were white Eastern European. About a third of the families were eligible for pupil premium funding, which is the funding in the UK that comes uh, attached to economic disadvantage. In poverty levels, probably significantly more than a third were children living in poverty because we know that that pupil premium uh, measure in the UK is quite a poor proxy of, of absolute poverty in the UK. In terms of their academic prior attainment, the children that came through from primary schools fitted very much a broad average national attainment trend. So the usual sort of bell curve of distribution, some children who were performing significantly above the national average, some significantly below, but averaged out at sort of bang on national average. When they took their GCSE exams, which are the exams taken at 16 after five years of secondary education, the students performed in those first two years when I was at the school in comfortably within the top 1% nationally. So the attainment score for the school in the first year was 36th out of the nearly 7,000 schools in the country. And in the second year, it was 50th. So again, kind of very comfortably within the top 1%. 
And we have a measure in the UK which is called progress, uh, a progress measure, which gives a number indicating where the average progress in the average subject is for a child based on the normal national progress over the, the whole of the secondary education. So a score of zero is dead on national average, which suggests that every child is performing in each of their subjects exactly where you'd expect based on their starting point. If you can get a score of plus one, it means that every child is doing a whole grade better than you would expect in every single one of their subjects. And very, very few schools in the country hit a sort of plus one score. To give you an indication of the gap in the UK, typically between advantaged children and and disadvantaged children, the children on the pupil premium register, if the average in the UK is zero, the average for a pupil premium child is minus 0.44. So across the UK currently, children from disadvantaged backgrounds do almost a whole half grade less well in in all their subjects than their more advantaged peers. In the first couple of years, our progress score was plus one across the whole cohort. And for the disadvantaged children, it was plus 0.8 in one of those years and plus 0.9 in the other. So our disadvantaged children were performing a grade and a half better on average than would have been expected from their starting points. And our children overall, one grade. So you can see that in real terms, the scores, there was still a slight difference between our advantaged children and our disadvantaged. Uh, Overall, averaged out, our disadvantaged children were still slightly underperforming our advantaged children. But in terms of the progress they were making compared to what would have been expected on the national trajectory, they were really sort of acing it. That's phenomenal. And I mean, the, the, the 35 schools that sat above you that year were there any other schools? Of a... I didn't like those schools at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> were they? Were they? But were any of them of a similar demographic, or were they just your Eatons and things like that? So this is just a state school league table, so it doesn't include your Eatons. The schools that tend to achieve most highly tend to be grammar schools, selective schools, and they tend to be single sex schools, often single sex girls' schools. But there were, and there are, some schools like Isaac Newton Academy, that are completely comprehensive, completely pluralistic, that do really, really well. And it was through being inspired and learning from schools like that, that we knew that this was possible and that we kept the belief. And it's those schools that, you know, are the schools that I always aspired for our school to be like. Yeah, it's phenomenal. So what, what, did, what did a standard lesson look like at Isaac Newton Academy? I would say there was no such thing as a standard lesson, and that was absolutely by design. And we were very proud of the fact that we didn't have cookie cutter lessons, which wasn't to say that we didn't have non-negotiables or we didn't have a framework of what really great lessons look like. But and we used to we, we had a very strong, carefully thought out teaching and learning policy, which we would train and induct teaching staff in. What did that include? It included what we called the 20 Newton's laws, a sort of play on, you know, Newton's laws, which were expectations that could be interpreted in a range of different ways. So one would say, for example, it's a non-negotiable that you welcome your children into your class and that they know that as soon as they cross the threshold into your class, they need to be in the right frame of mind for learning and they're yours, you know, and their mind needs to be with you and they need to be 100% engaged. But we didn't tell people how they had to execute that. So it was up to an individual teacher whether they were standing out in the corridor to greet their, greet their class and requiring the children to line up silently and then, you know, greet them over the threshold by saying good morning to each of them. Some of our staff did that. Other staff really liked to be at their workstation and for the children to just come in more sort of free flow 
but to know that as soon as they cross the threshold, they stop talking about who won the football last night or who's going out with whom. And they, you know, their mind was focused on the chemistry lesson. And there might be a really challenging or exciting or curiosity forming question on the board for them to start to think about and debate. Some people like their children to come in silently. Some people like their children to come in already with a sort of task that they were engaged in. So there was an awful lot of autonomy given to teachers about how they achieve the non-negotiables, but there were non-negotiables. Another would have been every lesson has to have a hook or a link to prior learning. It has to make it very clear and explicit, but not necessarily through teacher exposition at the beginning, what the learning outcomes and goals are. It has to have an element of new learning, but it has to give a sufficient amount of time to consolidating and practicing and refining um, and embedding that that new learning. And it has to have a degree of assessing at the end how well that learning has, has been embedded. And that might be, you know, through a formal sort of summative activity, or it might be a very quick check in because actually you're going to do part two of the new learning tomorrow in tomorrow's lesson. So we didn't sort of say, you know, the start of your lesson must last for 10 minutes and you must have a 10 minute plenary at the end. But we did say you do need to go through that sort of cyclical learning process because research tells us that that's how learning um, becomes embedded. Wonderful. That, that principles idea is really powerful because it's kind of like flexibility within form or as Dylan William would call it tight but loose if we want to get our hands on those uh, 20 principles is, is there any way to do that absolutely yeah I can send those through to you all right wonderful and we'll, we'll share that with with listeners was there any additional kind of intervention approach for students who are particularly far behind and if so to what extent was that a core part of of the achievement that you that was was seen at Isaac Newton Academy Like all schools, I would imagine, we stressed with our teachers how important it was that in planning their lessons, they took account of learners' starting points, that they really needed to get to know their learners and form a strong relationship with them. And they really needed to be data informed in terms of what was the right starting point for their lessons and how they were going to differentiate the learning activities so that everybody could access them and everybody would be stretched and challenged. And planning was a big part of our teaching and learning work at at Isaac Newton Academy. And we did require staff to plan every lesson and to share and publish their plans and partly that was around being a new school and wanting to create a bank of resources that then new recruits would be able to benefit from. But partly it was about saying we teach best when we've co-created learning experiences and we need to pool and share the expertise we have amongst our staff body. So we gave time to co-planning meetings every week for every subject team. And then we required teams to also go back and reflect and review and evaluate schemes once they've been delivered, because in the early days, everything was being delivered for the first time. So it was really important that we knew that the time that had been invested in designing those schemes of learning had been productive and profitable and that we refined and improved if we needed to. So we asked staff to always be aware of who their disadvantaged learners were in terms of those who were economically um, disadvantaged, but also to be very conscious of which children came to class, as you say, behind academically or with particular special educational needs or disabilities, and to work where they were lucky enough to have a teaching assistant supporting them in their class with that second adult, and where they didn't, or even if they did, to think about alternative ways in which they could build in pre-teaching for children if that would help them to come to the lesson already boosted and pre-prepared, or post-teaching if it was clear after a learning episode that a student was really struggling and hadn't grasped the key concept that was going to then hold them back, you know, in the progressive learning that happened in the next 
um, lesson. And sometimes that was using older students to coach and uh, peer teach younger students. Sometimes it was about thinking carefully about groupings within class so that a student who was really strong at a particular concept um, worked with and supported a student who perhaps wasn't so secure. And partly it was about working with parents too and running workshops for parents and getting them in to see how we were teaching particular skills or concepts and ensuring that where they'd got capacity, they could continue the learning journey out of school hours. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really interesting because... I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of school leaders listening and they go, yeah, we have learning print teaching and learning principles at our school. Yeah, we run extra sessions for students who are struggling. Yeah, we do co-planning, but we're not in the top 1% of <laughs> achieving schools in our country. What is the what is the magic source? What else were you doing? And maybe it's the other two parts of the framework and that's the answer and that's what we can hit on to. But, but you know... You speak about it so easily. It's like, yeah, we just did a What was the magic sauce? How did, it, how did it all come together? It wasn't easy. And teachers are time poor. So every time you make a commitment to run an after-school intervention or a preschool catch-up, you're eating into time that otherwise could be spent on planning or resource accumulation or training or coaching. And there were, as every school leader will recognise, conflicting priorities. I think what is really important is looking objectively and taking honest appraisal of what's working and what perhaps isn't and making sure that the additional time and discretionary effort that staff are investing is really leading to tangible output. So we would quite regularly review what we were asking staff to do additionally. And, and I'm very aware that we ask staff to do things additional to just, you know, planning and, and, and teaching their lessons and marking their books. But we tried to make sure that we built in additional training days and opportunities for staff to come together within the sort of, you know, the working week and the, and the prescribed sort of days per year. So within the UK, there's sort of notional 195 teaching days that are required to be delivered. We, as an academy, had the freedom to play around with that. And I also sort of took a, a few liberties probably I can admit this now that I've left uh, and so we we eroded that and we said right we'll, we'll actually have fewer teaching days formal teaching days than that because we want to provide time within the academic year for teachers to plan and be trained and coach and develop each other and actually that won't disadvantage the children because if we're teaching them at the same time to be independent learners and to be able to learn anywhere anytime then it's absolutely fine if once a term we say you know what today you're not learning in school you're learning at home and we will help you plan your learning but you're going to get on with it by yourself and we're going to train you to do that you know from the age of 11 because when you go to university if that's what you choose to do at the age of 18 you're going to be doing that every day so you know we need to get you into the habit of being able to learn without you know going to a different class on the hour and and being spoon-fed by a different teacher every hour so that was a, a very important element, I think, of being aware that we were asking more of staff and therefore we had to create the time and space for it to be manageable. Mm. So one, one other thing I'm wondering is, did you, did you do a lot of testing? Like were you doing cohort testing to see if they're progressing on a month-by-month -month basis or a term-by-term -term basis or anything like that to really, you know, target interventions and things like that? We assessed really regularly, but very often informally. There was a lot of autonomy given to individual subject teams to determine how frequently they wanted to test and what sort of tests they wanted to use. 
So subject areas like maths and science would often do pre-tests at the beginning of a topic or unit and then a post-test afterwards. But they were quite low stakes tests. You know, they were they were quick snap activities done in the classroom, you know, often without the need for children to revise formally. We did formal exams at the end of each year and they were a big deal and they were done in the exam hall because we wanted to coach children in how to perform your best in a high stakes testing situation, because that is the examination system in the UK for right or wrong. And I have an opinion on that. I don't think high stakes testing in formal exam halls is great at all. But I wanted my children to be able to, you know, smash it in those situations. And therefore, they needed to be trained in how to do that and how to manage your nerves and how to learn a whole chunk of information to regurgitate it in an exam. So we did do that. We tried not to spend a disproportionate amount of time testing. It's, you know, the old thing of let's spend the time fattening the pig rather than weighing the pig. But we also wanted to know that what we had taught had been properly learnt. So it was important that through a whole range of formative as well as summative assessment methods, we were reassuring ourselves that the way in which we were teaching was having impact. Mm. As a leader, how could you tell whether things were on the right track in terms of student learning? Through all the instinctive measures discussions with learners, looking at progress in their books, dropping into lessons. And I'm not just talking about senior leaders doing this, but middle leaders too, and people dropping into you know their peers' lessons and having conversations with the children. But also as a new school, it was important that we had really good links with other schools so that we could see how our children were progressing relative to other children. Because of course, one of the dangers of starting a new school is that you are building sort of from the bottom up and your founding cohorts don't have older peers to aspire to behave like and to learn from. And it's very easy to lull yourself into a false sense of security that you've got these wonderful sort of precocious, you know, protégés that you're developing and aren't they brilliant? Because you forget actually how much even better they need to be in a couple of years time. So we found lots of opportunities to ensure that older children from local schools and from schools within our network visited and challenged and I suppose provoked our children to want to become you know, even better versions of themselves as learners. Wonderful. It's just trying to get my head around it. Um, what, did, what did a week look like? What did a week look like? Like for, for, for a student or just in terms of the school's timetable and this is something I want to ask about because there was just so much I got the sense that there was just so much going on at the school in terms of clubs and programs and things like that what did a a week or a term generally look like in terms of offerings for students I think if you came to look around the school you would feel that the basic timetable structure of the day was quite conventional so we taught all of the usual lessons that you'd expect to see on the curriculum and lessons were an hour long, which is a pretty standard uh, length for a lesson in the UK. And we had, you know, a morning break and a lunchtime. What was different was that our school day was relatively long. We had six taught lessons in a day. So our, our school taught curriculum week was 29 or 30 hours. It varied slightly from one year group to another. Whereas typically in the UK, a taught week would, in most schools, be 24 to 25 hours. However, individual teachers didn't teach more than... 20, 21, 22 hours a week, depending on whether they had additional responsibilities, which is very much the average for, for a teacher in the UK. So our teachers had more non-contact periods within the school day, but our children did a longer school day. And then you're right, Ollie, there was a whole menu of after school and sometimes lunchtime and occasionally before school enrichment activities. We called them enrichment rather than extracurricular because we didn't see them extra to our curriculum. We saw them as an integral part of our curriculum. They were all free 
and children were encouraged to attend on as many days a week as they could logistically manage, you know, against outside school commitments. And some of our children had to leave school to pick up younger siblings or to go to madrasa or, you know, to have other uh, commitments. But every day there would be probably 20 different enrichment activities that children could participate in. And many children did do an, an enrichment activity every single day of the week. And the reason why we could offer so many is that every single member of staff contributed to or ran an enrichment activity. And again, that was one of the things that was a condition of joining the school and one of the big advantages we have by setting up a school from scratch, that we would ensure a commitment from people at interview that they were happy to, to effectively give an hour a week of their time unpaid to run an enrichment activity in something that was a passion of theirs or something that they knew the children were passionate about and didn't appear on the formal talk curriculum. So it was in that hour of the week that we saw all sorts of amazing things like Irish dancing and debating and eco club and, uh, you know, a whole range of, of different um, enriching activities. Mm, wonderful. All right. So that was, we're trying to move on to learning, learning power now. That was knowledge. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Rachel stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to that spot within the podcast and listen back from that exact point at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary includes the inspiring vision statement of the Isaac Newton Academy, the Bridges acronym, other ideas about building learning power, comments on cultural capital, as well as some of my takeaways from Rachel's book that didn't manage to make it into the podcast due to time constraints. There really was so much gold in Rachel's book that we unfortunately didn't have time to explore within the podcast. So if you'd like a memorable summary of this episode of the E-Travel podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, then go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 US per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the Eat Your podcast with Rachel McFarlane. One of the things you really talked about then that came up in the, in the kind of knowledge building part of things was helping students become independent learners. And you talked about the idea of helping them to plan their learning, even go home and learn it themselves. And you reduce from 195 days and actually reduce that. How did you get onto this idea of, of learning power and developing independent learners? And how did you know it was such an important thing? I'd come to hear about learning power a good decade before I got the headship at Isaac Newton. So in my first headship, I heard uh, Guy Claxton speak at a conference for head teachers. And Guy, as many of your listeners will know, is one of the founders of uh, the Learning to Learn movement. And he developed 20 years ago Building Learning Power. And at the time, he was talking about Building Learning Power. And I was in a headship 
of a school that was quite a challenging school in quite a, a vulnerable position. But I was just about to move to my second headship in London of an outstanding girls' school that was achieving really good academic results, that was very much a sort of the darling of the local authority, a really successful, well-established school with a strong tradition of great education for girls. And listening to Guy, I realised that building learning power and developing a learning powered approach could take this new school of mine that I was about to join up to a new level. And that in a way, it was a perfect testing ground for the learning to learn principles. So when I went to the new school a few months later, and I'd already linked up with Guy and talked to him further about building learning power and how I might introduce it at Walthamstow School for Girls, I was very explicit with the staff and said, I'd really like us to explore this. I think it's an important facet of education that perhaps is currently underdeveloped at the school. And I think there's the potential for our students to be more effective learners and to achieve better academic outcomes. Because, as you know, Ollie, great learning to learn techniques and skills and dispositions absolutely go hand in hand with great academic outcomes. You know, the two aren't separate. They absolutely complement each other. And, And so over the seven years that I was head at Walthamstow Girls, With a team of really committed, like-minded devotees, we introduced Building Learning Power at the school in quite a gradual way, because this was a well-established school with some teachers who'd been at the school for a long time, and it was asking them to really reconsider the very essence of the way in which they taught. And as you can imagine, some people immediately got it and were you know, full of excitement and said, yes, I'm buying into this. I'm going to completely transform my teaching from tomorrow. And others said, that looks really interesting. I'm not sure how I'd do that. You know, I'm, I'm up for developing it a little bit at a time, perhaps trialing and tinkering around the edges with a few of my groups who I've got a really good relationship with. But I, I don't think I can do it, you know, five hours a day every day. And other people said, hmm, I like it. I'm not sure that I'm ready to sort of jump in both feet first now. And there were probably some other people who kept quite quiet and were a bit cynical and thought, well, I'll wait and see sort of how that takes off and develops. But over the seven years, we gradually built it up and started to see that we were developing really great learners through its introduction. So that when I then got the headship at Isaac Newton, I knew that I wanted it to be a learning to learn school. I knew that I wanted a framework that would underpin everything we did that was based on explicitly developing and teaching behaviours and skills and habits of mind and dispositions in our young people. So again, in my setup year, I visited a lot of schools that were doing variations of learning to learn, both in the UK and in the States. And I adapted a framework that was being used in an uncommon school near to Brooklyn Bridge that was called Bridge. And I played around with the sort of acronym and it tied in really nicely with a very famous Isaac Newton quote where Isaac Newton said, we build too many walls and not enough bridges. And it seemed to me that that talked very much to the fact that we need to support students with bridges or structures or systems to help them to traverse from one stage of their life or their education to another. And it's by enabling them to build that sort of scaffolding that we help them to really fly as learners. So we used the acronym BRIDGES, which stood for the seven key learning dispositions or areas that we were looking to support our learners to develop. So B was for bravery, then R for resourcefulness. I for integrity, D for discovery, G for grit, E for emotional intelligence, and S for um, self-discipline. And within each of those seven key areas, we broke down what each meant in terms of sort of sub-dispositions. So within the bravery basket were things like risk-taking and leadership and taking yourself out of your comfort zone. And so we built a framework whereby eventually we had 52 dispositions falling under these seven umbrella letters. 
and we created a, a nice sort of diagram or, or wheel that had the seven areas shaded in different colours, again, playing on the kind of um, Isaac Newton disc. And each of the spokes of the wheel were a different sub-disposition. I can remember Guy Claxton, who I, I've been friends with now for 20 years, sitting with me as I was designing this and saying, Rachel, this is far too complex. You can't have 52 different dispositions. You know, they're kids, for God's sake. They're never going to be able to cope with this. And I said, I think they will. I think, you know, if we if we structure a framework where we introduce them to the dispositions cyclically on a kind of fortnightly basis and, you know, it spreads over maybe a two year period, they don't actually get to see the reveal of every bit of the wheel until, you know, over over a, a two year period. I think they can cope with this and then we'll revisit and rebuild and embed, you know, each of those uh, dispositions and teach them how you become progressively stronger at each of them and showcase people in the media or in history who've been great exponents of each. And he sometimes laughs now and says, you know, Rachel was right. They easily cope with that. They'd kind of, you know, got the 52 dispositions within a year or so and was sort of saying, OK, what next? And even then when we opened the primary and we were introducing a version of the Bridges wheel to our four year olds, we didn't int- we didn't introduce all 52 dispositions with them at once. But we used the seven key words. And each week in the primary school, we'd focus on a different different theme. So one week would be a um, bravery week, then a resourcefulness week, then an integrity week. And the assemblies were linked into the disposition and tutor periods or teacher periods in the primary were linked in. And within every scheme of learning in every subject area, we asked teachers to make explicit how in their lessons they would be developing the most sort of applicable or relevant disposition alongside the subject knowledge of that lesson. So if I was teaching a history lesson, say, on why the Normans won the Battle of Hastings, my subject content objective would be why did the Normans win the Battle of Hastings? But I would have alongside that a, a bridges objective of perhaps learning about that through collaboration or through perhaps uh, active listening if they needed to sort of listen to some contemporaneous accounts or something. So we got teachers into the habit of what we called split screen planning, where every time they planned a lesson or a learning sequence, they were very clearly making explicit what were the knowledge and subject sort of learning objectives and what were the bridges learning objectives, talking to learners in a metacognitive way about what learning dispositions or habits of mind we're developing and why we're choosing to learn about quadratic equations by using our collaboration skills or our prioritization skills or our humanity skills. And sometimes we would ask students in class to determine what would be the best bridges dispositions to use in a particular situation. Or sometimes we teach a whole lesson and then in the plenary say, which of your bridges dispositions did you use today? Who was really good at exemplifying managing distractions or empathy? So the language just became really built into the culture of the school. We built it into our praise and recognition system. So every time we gave a shout out for somebody in assembly or in form time, We linked it to the Bridges disposition that they had exhibited that we were so proud of. When we gave postcards home or rewards, they were always linked into Bridges dispositions. We taught very explicitly to parents about what the Bridges framework was and why we thought it was so important. And every week in the newsletter, we would showcase the disposition that we were working on currently. And there would be top tips for how parents and family members could help to develop that at home. So it was seen as a, a, as a, as a collaborative venture that they were involved in as well. Mm, that's remarkable, Rachel. Every time I ask you a question, it's like, what did you do? And you give me a list of about <laughs> thousand and one things that you were doing to support that thing. And it's like, oh, that's a very comprehensive <laughs> answer. How did the teachers have, have the skills to do this? Again, through training. 
So it was a really exciting initiative. And we'd recruited staff who were bought into this vision. And we were learning together. You know, we, we hadn't got all the answers, but there were schools that were well developed in aspects of learning to learn or building learning power. So we hooked in with them. We always had a senior leader overseeing the initiative who did a lot of the groundwork, but we always had a working party of keenies who were designing resources and, um, you know, knocking ideas around with each other. And people loved being part of that working group. And over the years, you know, membership of the group and leadership would change because to invest in this as a school and do it well and for it to have impact takes, a, you know, a, it's a big investment and it always needs to be on the front burner and you can't afford to, you know, to, to give it a rest for a year. And therefore, it's a bit like, you know, geese flying in formation that the goose at the front would change from time to time because it's, an, it's a demanding activity. So the senior leader who started by leading the whole Bridges Initiative after a couple of years gave way to another senior leader and the working group would sort of morph and transform and change over the years. And as the founding cohort moved from, you know, lower upper school to to more senior and then into the sixth form and as we brought the primary on stream we had to adapt the the framework and the method of delivery and the nature of the assemblies and the reward system etc to make it age appropriate and also to keep it fresh and different because we didn't want a formulaic boring predictable way of revisiting each disposition each time you know it came round on the cycle so we would think very carefully about if a if a year group were having their third assembly around perseverance how did we approach it you know the first time and the second time and who could we get in to do some you know very different take and if it was a member of staff who led the assembly last time could we get some students leading it the next time or a visiting speaker or so it was about mixing it up and keeping it fresh and constantly reviewing and seeing what was going well and what wasn't going so well mm. what to, to support this, I mean, you talked about the, the, the geese flying in formation there. What, what was the leadership structure that you had at the school? And what were the key roles? Not very different, probably, from many other schools. So we had, I was the principal. I had vice principals in the early days when it was a small school, just one vice principal. And then that grew as the primary came on and then assistant principals and then a lot of middle leaders. But always within the roles and responsibilities of the most senior leaders sat the really key roles, teaching and learning, staff development, bridges, you know, always up there as key responsibilities and and the character development and cultural capital piece too. Mm -hmm. So were they, how many vice principals did you end up having in the end? In the end, at the time that the school was full, three vice principals and I think five or six assistant principals. Okay. Uh, what's the distinction between them? Uh, just seniority and pay and assistant principals would typically have a slightly heavier teaching load and less, you know, uh, leadership time within, the, you know, the formal week. So, so what were the portfolios of those three vice principals? It changed over time, but once the school was full, one was overseeing primary, uh, one was very much overseeing teaching and learning and staff development and bridges at that time, and the other was overseeing the sixth form, which was sort of, you know, new and, and sort of evolving, and cultural capital and parental links and engagement with the community. What about the assistants? I'm probably testing you now. 
One was overseeing all the students right way through the academy with special educational needs or disabilities. One was focused on behaviour and our sort of positive behaviour, ethos, sort of culture piece. Um, one was very much in term in overseeing the curriculum and the timetable. I think I'm nearly there. Yeah. And, but also on our senior leadership team was our finance and resources director, you know, what some schools would call a business manager. And she was somebody who'd come into senior leadership, not through a teaching route, but was absolutely integral to the strategic leadership of the school. It was really important for us that the operational staff, the staff who didn't teach, were seen as completely on a par with the teaching staff. They were so integral to the success of the school and the implementation of the vision. So it was strategically and symbolically really important that their leader sat right in the centre of the, the school leadership team. I'm interested to kind of to, to take a sidestep and explore a kind of parallel idea at the moment. And that is the work that you're doing at the moment, supporting school leaders. When school leaders come to you, I mean, you've got this kind of tripartite framework in your head as like, these are the things that really successful schools do. And to, to remind listeners of that, that vision statement, Isaac Newton Academy, to equip every student with the knowledge, learning power and character necessary for success at university and beyond. So just kind of harking back to that. How do you help school leaders, especially those in schools that are struggling, start on this journey? The most important thing that I have to do as a consultant or an advisor to a school leader, and I have to ensure my colleagues are doing in the same role, is to listen to the school and really understand where the school is. And there are different ways, multiple different ways of becoming a great school. And Isaac Newton Academy did it in one way. And, you know, I like to think it was a successful way for that school. But it wouldn't necessarily be a system that you would lift and just, you know, transpose cold or wholesale into another organisation. And like a good coach or mentor, the role of the consultant in, in my organisation is to help leaders come to their own realisation of what will work and what needs to be the journey they go on in their school. So, you know, just saying you really need a character programme and this is how you do it, you know, these are the 10 steps would be disastrous. And most schools will have elements of, you know, the knowledge, the learning power and the character happening within their school. They might call them different things. They might not be as explicit or overt in the mission statement. And one might be more developed than others. And I suppose the skill of being a good consultant or advisor is to know which element of school improvement or leadership to give time and oxygen to first and in what order and in what way to lead to the biggest returns or the most impact and to help school leaders to, to see that clearly in amongst the myriad other things that they're, they're doing. So what are some of the processes that you support school leaders to do to, to begin that listening process? To really take stock and audit the current provision and the quality of the current provision uh, in an objective and you know, non-defensive way, and then to talk to them around where they want to go next and why they're coming to that realisation. And ha Sorry, sorry to interrupt. How do they take stock? Through a whole range of auditing tools, I think. Sometimes it might be around, you know, student voice activities or staff voice or interviewing parents. Sometimes it might be through slicing data in, you know, a range of different ways. Sometimes it might be through having a sort of whole school focus day around a particular aspect of provision. 
But I think they need to have some really robust and objective data to look at with governors, with senior leaders, with middle leaders to determine where they are at the moment. And then they need to be supported in really smart, effective action planning, deciding what they're going to tackle in what order, over what time period, through what actions, with what sort of success criteria or milestones along the way. And we know, don't we, that's a really, really hard thing to do. And I have a whole chapter in the book around action planning and attempting to action plan in a smart way that's manageable and realistic, but is also quite challenging and rigorous in terms of not just continuing to relentlessly pursue the same actions because you've said you're going to do them at the outset if they're not leading to tangible outcomes or benefiting the learners. And taking a brave look at regular intervals, taking stock and saying, is this working? How do we know if it isn't? Why isn't it? How should we adapt our plan? How do you feel you're going, you and your team, in terms of supporting schools? It's a brilliant job. And it's a bit like in, in we have a, a phrase in, in the UK, it's a bit like painting the fourth bridge. The fourth bridge is this big bridge in Scotland where, you know, by the time you finish painting it, the beginning bit is appealing and you have to go back and start it again. So, you know, it's never, ever going to be a job completed, which is why it's so exciting. And leaders that we work with are so open to challenge and support that it's a real privilege being invited into schools to be part of the school improvement dialogue and and conversation and journey. And what do you think makes you and your team really good at this job? I mean, you know, I've just got to admit, I'm I'm pretty in awe, Rachel, because it's it's, it's enough of a challenge to kind of get a classroom working in a cohesive way, right? I'm sure many teachers would attest to that. And then there's a department, getting a department work and the whole, whole staff pulling in the same direction, consistent processes and that really monitoring and supporting students. And then you step out to the school level um, and, you know, I'm in awe of school leaders who can do this, but then to work across many, many schools, all with unique challenges as you identify, all with unique kind of staffing and staffing issues and staff's opinions and beliefs and elephants in the room and things like that. What is it that helps you and your team to to do this effectively? So like you, I'm in awe of school leaders, and I think they're the ones that affect the most significant change. I'm under no illusions. We might work quite intensively with a school. We might do maybe 10 or 12 days of input over, you know, a couple of terms, which is quite intense, you know, for us. But it's still a drop in the ocean in terms of, you know, the impact that has. And it's really the leaders in the school every day, you know, sweating the small stuff that make the difference. We just hopefully help to give them a bit of space to think strategically and clarity to see priorities and some tools and strategies based on us being in a slightly more uh, luxurious position of having a bit of time for reading and research and discussion and training. And I think what helps to keep us with our finger on the pulse is keeping ourselves challenged through reading and research and, and updating our training, team meetings, sharing of practice. We observe each other. We, we shadow each other on visits as well, because all the time, you know, we're learning and needing to improve our practice. So, yeah, I think that hopefully we make a difference, but we're under no illusions that it's the school leaders that really, you know, ensure their schools are great schools. If a school leader comes to you and says, I want to build our students' learning power, how do you help them start usually? So a couple of years ago, some friends and I, including Guy Claxton, wrote a book called Powering Up Your School. 
And in that, we tell the stories of a number of schools that have done exactly that. And we probably tell about 12 different stories, including the Isaac Newton Academy story and the Walthamstow School for Girls story. And the reason that we approach it through a range of different experiences is to say there's no one set formula for doing this. There are lots and lots of different ways to introduce building learning power or learning power approach to your school. And they can all work in different contexts or something very different could work in your context. But there are some common lessons that all of these school leaders who've attempted to do this and had success have learned along the way around how you get buy-in, how you keep this agenda you know, at the forefront how you deal with dissenting voices, how you cope when, you know, you, you're running, your energy levels are running a bit low, how you help to sort of reevaluate and recalibrate if it's going a little bit kind of wonky. So the book is divided into chapters looking at different elements of the successful implementation of that, that approach. And I would often now direct leaders to that book and say, you know, have a read of this chapter or this bit and then we could have a discussion and a conversation and I'd be really interested to hear what you've learned from this and whether any of it resonates and whether you think it, you know, has applicability to your school and your context. It's such it's such an interesting area because, I mean, I, I had a similar... So I interviewed a guy a few years ago, Russell Bishop, right? And he, he talks about this this idea of deficit theorizing, which is basically what you talk about in terms of the elephant in the room, right? It's when you have beliefs, limiting beliefs about your students, it has a negative impact on their learning, right? And in that interview, I was interviewing Guy, is interviewing Russell, should I say, and I was saying, Russell, you got to give, you got to give th- teachers three tips. What are the three things that teachers have to do so that they don't, you know, deficit theorize or having these negative kind of narratives around their students. And, and I, I felt like I couldn't tie him down to a concrete answer. He, he kept on, I, I feel like he was evading the question and speaking in kind of generalities or narratives and things. I was like, well, just give us some tips. But after a while, the, the penny kind of dropped for me and it was actually, and I realized that it isn't actually a collection of kind of tips or steps or anything that you have to follow. It's actually kind of a mental framework, or as Vivian Robertson would talk about, a theory of a theory of action that you have to be kind of manifesting your teaching from for you to actually act in a way that's consistent in different and changing and flexible circumstances. And the more that I explore the idea of learning to learn and building learning power, the more I realise that actually the people who I look up to who have done who are doing this and who have done it successfully. Have it, have it the same way. It's kind of this like, it's kind of the vibe of it or it's kind of a mental model or a framework or a core belief system about learning from which all these practices emanate. And so when I often say, you know, where do you start or what actions do teachers take in the classroom? I, I feel like I don't get a concrete answer, but it's because maybe there isn't. I don't know how that sounds to you. And if that matches, I'm trying to get a clearer picture of that mindset where that where that comes from i think that's right but i also think as we explore in the powering up your school book there are certain component parts that without which it's going to be very difficult to embed an effective learning to learn policy so we argue really strongly the senior leaders and really the principal or the head teacher has to believe in it passionately and they have to talk about it relentlessly they have to have sort of practice their elevator pitch They have to, you know, grab any audience, any opportunity 
to speak persuasively about why this needs to be the number one priority. And they have to be relentless in cutting a path to ensuring that the staff are not going to be sidetracked by other initiatives and distracted by other time-consuming activities. So if you're serious about it, it's going to take years. It's going to take investment. It needs to be the number one priority. It needs to be given the oxygen and the air. You need to think about how you're going to set up the structure and the framework, how you're going to win all the stakeholders over, the staff, the parents, the, the pupils. And you need to be prepared for, you know, some bumps in the road. So that's a really fundamental prerequisite, I think. Another would be you have to determine how you're going to measure the impact, which doesn't mean that you need to see really dramatic achievements, you know, after three months. It might be that you're starting to see some, you know, small green shoots, but you have to be clear at what point you want to see what changes and how you're going to evidence them and what you'll do if you don't see them and, you know, be open to potentially changing course. Because, of course, it's by having demonstrable impact that you continue to keep people keeping the faith and knowing that the, the blood, sweat and tears they're investing in it is really worth it. And that by focusing their energy on building learning power as well as chasing academic outcomes, they're actually the two are sort of symbiotically supporting each other. Mm, that's great. Some of the stuff I'm I'm exploring at the moment and the school I'm working in is exploring at the moment is the work of Jim Collins uh, and his good to great framework. And that relates very much to two things you talked about there. One is the hedgehog concept, which is just having dogged determination and just focus and driving for years or whatever it takes to kind of manifest that hedgehog concept or that key idea. And the other is confronting the brutal facts establishing feedback cycles so that you can actually get really clear feedback on what you're doing. And that leads into the next question I was actually going to ask you, which is how did you evidence learning skills and dispositions within your students to, to try to gauge whether you are making progress on that front? In a whole variety of ways. So through those independent learning days that I talked about earlier, where we let students loose and said, you've got the equivalent of six hours learning time, you're going to organise it, you know, your teachers will want to see the product or the, you know, the end result, but we're giving you responsibility for organising your time. That was a way of sort of in a, in a relatively safe environment, letting them loose and, you know, seeing what emerged. We also set up a mentoring discussion system where twice a year the timetable was suspended and every student had a half hour appointment with a member of staff who might be their form tutor or might be a senior leader or might be a member of the operational staff. And they presented on how their bridges dispositions were developing and they prepared for that in advance with their form tutor. And they came along almost like a sort of fiver and talked about the some of the 52 dispositions and said, I feel like I'm really well developed in this one and this one and this one. And this is how I know. And here's the evidence and here's the feedback I've had from my teachers. Or I know this because in my out of school karate club, I'm now much more tenacious. And when somebody beats me, I don't get so upset and I kind of pick myself up and, you know, fight back or whatever. And these are the dispositions that I know I need to work on further. And I know that I'm not so well developed in these because I'm still displaying these behaviours or I still have these emotions or the feedback I got from my geography teacher was X. And we trained staff on how to be Bridges coaches. So they would, you know, receive the, the presentation and then ask some follow up questions and write a few notes and that the notes would go home to the parents so they were part of that dialogue as well. And then over time, we trained older students to be Bridges coaches and they convened those meetings for the primary school children 
So secondary children, school children would go down to the primary and they would hold those meetings with the four and five and six year olds. And it was a magic day because it was just a day of lots and lots of one to one conversations about how can we evidence the development of these skills and dispositions. And generally what we were looking for was skills being and dispositions being displayed more regularly and habitually. Skills being displayed not just in one domain or subject area, but in a range and not just at school with the support of staff, but also at home and independently. And skills being developed without additional support, so not needing an adult to guide or direct or assist you. And in the framework we designed with the Bridges Wheel, there were sort of three domains that were the sort of, you know, independently, everywhere, habitually, you know, almost as, as easy as breathing, right down to in some places with a lot of handholding, you know, and lots of reminders and nudges. And we'd get children for each of the dispositions to determine where they were in that kind of three-stage approach. And it was very much saying, you're the learner, you know in your heart of hearts how you're developing in these dispositions. Some of them, it might be easy for a teacher to tell you what they see, but others, it's much more a personal, ipsative thing. It's very difficult for me as your head teacher to say, I think this is where you are on the honesty spectrum. Only you can say how good you are at honesty because, you know, only you know what you're saying and what you're thinking and how you're behaving 24 hours a day. So whilst we supported and guided, we didn't we didn't assess children on their bridges dispositions. We supported them to self-assess. Yeah, that's really powerful. Now, I think that that's something that's really shone through in James Mannion and Kate McAllister's work as well, using just supporting students to talk about their own journey. Uh, and I think that's powerful in so many ways. You know, one is it, it's it's a way of kind of making learning visible, to use, to use Hattie's phrase. Another is it it brings it alive for students in a way that, you know, if you're actually talking about it, it becomes more real to you. But also to teachers, if a teacher has worked with a student and a student comes up and says, you know, this is the transformation this has, like that just creates, this, uh, you know, a positive cycle where the teacher goes, wow, like I'm hearing, you know, you're reflecting back to me all the, you know, all the fruits of my own labor in supporting this view. So yeah, okay, I'm starting to get a clear picture maybe. We've got the hedgehog concept and that dogged determination um, and then and, feedback. And, and I a, think Jim Collins' flywheel is in there too. Yeah. It's the sort of virtual cycle yeah. of momentum. There we go. So we need to formulate a flywheel around, around this self-regulated learning thing. That's good. That's something to think about. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll draft something and I'll send it to you. Excellent. All right, cool. Well, we made a bit of progress on that front. We've, we've looked at knowledge, we've looked at learning power. The first, third idea is kind of character. And you've mentioned this idea a few times, the idea of cultural capital, and you talked about it as one of the key kind of sitting along kind of parent, parent and, part, and community involvement, this character development and this cultural capital. Let's start with what is cultural capital? Absolutely. But before that, perhaps it's worth saying that within the Bridges framework, there was a lot of character development. So the Bridges framework had dispositions that were around learning skills, but also character. So you would see things like humility, honesty, integrity, you know, very much featuring within that Bridges framework. So that was part of the way that we developed character. 
But going back to cultural capital, in the book, I try to give a definition because I think different people interpret cultural capital to mean slightly different things. What I say is that for me, cultural capital is the skills, norms, behaviours, wider cultural knowledge that gives us social, economic and other advantages. So in a way, cultural capital are the assets that allow us to move smoothly and confidently between different groups or different levels in society. So any activity that enables an individual to grow their strength at doing those things comes under the umbrella of cultural capital for me. Mm. Maybe we'll go to the, the vision a little bit of that. So you had this thing called the Cultural Education Policy Statement. What, what was that, Rachel? Sounds, sounds North Korean, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was really just um, a policy that articulated that, what we meant by cultural capital and why we believe it's so important because it's fundamental to social mobility. And if we want to support young people to feel strong about themselves, worthy of having exposure to really exciting opportunities that often, sadly, are only open to the most privileged and to not to feel imposter syndrome when they attend the opera or go to a cricket match or have the opportunity to do work experience at Goldman Sachs, then we need to be developing all sorts of opportunities to widen the horizons and open the eyes of young people to experiences and maybe not naturally within their realm of, ex of experience or would be open to them by their friends and family and their social constructs sort of within which they, they currently live. Mm. What was on the list of, of things you wanted them to experience? A huge number of things. So we had what we called a cultural passport and we tailored it for each key stage or age range within the school. And we had a lot of fun with staff and students and parents uh, devising that list. And we would say, you know, by the end of this phase of education, we want every child to have had the following experiences. And they'd be sort of generic, so they weren't really honed down into specifics, but it would be, you know, the opportunity to experience a range of film genres or the opportunity to have travelled into London to have seen a performance, which could be a ballet or a musical or a show or a festival, the opportunity to have had a poem published or the opportunity to read it aloud to a group of people. So it was a whole range of sporting, artistic, dramatic, performing, creating, designing opportunities that expose them to a wider genre of artistic forms and 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 opportunities the, the opportunity to plan a trip to a local park or museum or gallery we just wanted our children to be challenged and inspired and provoked by all of the rich cultural opportunities that come so naturally as just sort of the privilege and the domain of the advantaged in society the sorts of things that just you know ooze out of a public school education for example or an upper middle class family life experience. One of the things you talked about in the school in the book that was really powerful was it's one thing to kind of set up these opportunities for students to follow but then actually getting them to come along can actually be a real challenge. You know, you set up a a trip to the Globe Theatre or something after school in the evening, you know, you have to meet at school or whatever catch the tube. Some kids might say they want to go or you send some letters home, but then not all the students turn up and often it's the ones who are least likely to get that experience in another context that, that don't turn up as well. What did you learn about supporting students to come along and what advice do you have for, for other educators trying to do that? 
You're right. I do explore this in the book, partly through what we learned to Isaac Newton and partly through the work that I do now with schools and some really honest conversations I've had with leaders who've um, thrown those dilemmas sort of at me and said, you know, why is it that we set up a trip, as you say, to a West End theatre and we make it fully funded for disadvantaged children and we talk about it being really exciting and we feel like we've broken down all the barriers um, and then, you know, we're expecting these children to turn up and they don't meet us at the station and they've missed the opportunity. I think there are obvious things that we can do to break down barriers in terms of making a trip affordable and putting in the financial sort of structures. But very often what we forget is that if these experiences aren't within the, the zone of sort of reality of families, they're quite scary experiences. You know, if a child's never been to the theatre before, they maybe don't know what to expect. They might not know what to wear, whether they need to bring kind of any snacks whether they're going to be exposed in any way and required to participate, what sort of conversations people will be having after the experience and whether they'll feel sort of gawky and uninitiated and show their naivety, I suppose, around, you know, in a situation like that. And also, I think if you don't know what you're going to experience, say, the first time you go to the Globe to see a Shakespeare play, you're not going to feel the pre-show excitement and anticipation. And you may think, quite understandably, this is going to be really boring. And, and, you know, I've looked at a Shakespeare play on the page and I don't understand any of the words. And why would I want to go and just listen to somebody talking that strange language for three hours? And you'd have no conception of how it's brought alive and made intelligible by the performance of it. You might have no idea there's going to be music and minstrels as well as the play. You might have no idea there's going to be slapstick humour. You might have no idea that there are going to be people sort of milling around in the equivalent of a kind of mosh pit. And it's just going to be a really great experience that, you know, it's open to the stars and it's going to be a beautiful sort of summer's evening and you'll spill out of the globe and you'll be on the River Thames, which you might never have seen before. And you're going to get a multitude of new experiences. And the other thing that I think often happens is that taking that example and taking it a bit further, a trip to the Globe Theatre is enhanced if you're a sort of middle class child coming back to then have a conversation with your parents at dinner the next day about the characterization and the the way in which the the play was staged to to have that post-mortem conversation and the supportive dialogic structures that come with that in a in an educated family that where that's just sort of part of the routines of what we do culturally is so different than if you're a child who has that experience doesn't talk to anyone about the play doesn't have the opportunity to dissect it or reflect on it afterwards so we as teachers need to be really aware of which children are going to get that follow-on after show experience and which aren't and make sure that we find time and structures in our school day to create the equivalent of the middle class dinner table conversation with those children who won't have it so that they'll really be able to process and, and almost learn what they learned from the experience. So they see it as a worthwhile experience and want to engage again and again. Mm. There's so much in it. It's so much. It's just it takes so much to provide these opportunities for students. I mean, it leads to a question I wanted to ask you. How did you manage to to achieve all this with your team obviously but like what did your how many hours are you working a week Rachel how did you how did you stay sane I think you you answered the question the question in the question it was with the team 
And I was really aware that if we were going to stand a fighting chance of being able to realise this ambitious aim, it was going to be a team venture and we had to get buy-in from everybody and we had to train up everybody and ensure that everybody felt as passionate about it as, as I did and felt empowered to deliver it. And, you know, by the time Isaac Newton was full, we had a star team of 300 people. Well, you know, what 300 people can do in a week is absolutely awesome. Um, what one person can do is, is next to nothing. So it was about distributed leadership and giving the conditions and the support and the training to everybody to be able to play their part. You know, I, I did work as as um, principal at INA and I still do work really long working weeks. But a lot of that is discretionary time. And I suppose what I've come to realise about myself is that I I often choose to work long hours. I often take on additional things like writing a book. You know, I didn't need to do that. That wasn't a requirement of my job, but I really wanted to do it. And so last year was quite a crazy year. And um, in some ways, it was quite fortuitous that I had, you know, a bit of extra time with lockdown, couldn't go off doing all sorts of things. So I, you know, devoted time to writing a book. But I think, I suppose I've come to learn about myself that I love the field of work that I'm privileged enough to work in. So for me, there isn't, you know, a rigid binary divide between work and life. It's not like I'm desperate to finish my work so I can start living my life. You know, I get a huge amount of satisfaction and energy and fulfillment through the work that I do. But it's really important, isn't it, as a leader that you are constantly protecting and managing the work-life balance of your staff because, you know, many of my staff had commitments that I didn't have, young families, elderly parents, you know, other commitments to, you know, a, a religious group or something else in their life that was really vitally important to them and sustained them and, you know, was, was an important commitment. So, there's an important piece, isn't there, around you choose how hard you want to work, but you also have to role model what you expect of others and not be unintentionally giving the the message that you expect everyone else to work crazy hours. Mm. Well, there's so much more I'd love to explore from your work, Rachel. We've, I really feel like we've only just scratched the surface. There was so much richness in your book around connecting with parents. Luckily, you touched on some of that stuff in your appearance on James Mannion's podcast. So I will include a link to the Rethinking Ed podcast with you, which was fantastic, which covered that. The idea of poverty proofing, we touched on a little bit then, but we could go so much deeper into that idea of poverty proofing. And that was one of my favorite chapters in the book as well. That one about how we can support students really to make the most of the opportunities um, that are available to them and the, the ways that we unconsciously kind of compromise that for them, um, I guess. And I learned a lot from that chapter. So much to explore, but we're going to have to move on to some very final questions because I know you have, have to go to another meeting. What are some books that you've, about education that you found really influential and you think other people might enjoy reading? There are so many. In terms of what we've been talking about today, Carol Dweck is probably the Bible, Carol Dweck's Mindset. And then a whole host of books spinning off that, including the Matthew Syed Bounce book, um, Jeff Colvin's work as well. In terms of learning power, all of the Guy Claxton and Bill Lucas work around that is really influential. And the series of four books of which Powering Up Your School was one are really good practical guides. There's one that's a handbook for leaders, one that's a handbook for primary teachers and one that's a handbook for secondary teachers. So they're a great read. And then... I've learned so much through books about change management and taking people with you. I love the um, the Fed model, um, Future Engage Deliver, um, of Steve Radcliffe. I think that's a, a great book. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, I, I could go on for ages. And I think that there are some wonderful books 
by head teachers and recently retired head teachers about how they have created great systems. And I love reading books, you know, about about setting up great forward thinking aspirational schools. I know you had um, James Hanscom recently on your uh, podcast. He's featured in my book in terms of setting up a really aspirational sixth form. And I think his recent book is a great read. Definitely. And what are you excited about at the moment, Rachel? So there are two areas which I'm really engrossed in at the moment. And one is the uh, is the area that I'm just about to go to a meeting about, which is rethinking assessment. So in the UK, we've got a movement which is learning from and dipping into you know, great practice around the world, including a lot of work in Australia around more holistic, smarter, uh, more multimodal and multidimensional ways of assessing students' learning and strengths. And I touched on earlier the frustration that I feel and lots of my colleagues feel around our very dominated by exam assessment model that we have in the UK at the moment. And in a way, the wonderful opportunity we have with two successive summers without public exams due to COVID uh, disruption that is enabling us just to look at a whole raft of ways in which we could better evidence in a, in a holistic way what our young people are achieving to help higher education um, institutions, to help employers, to help young people feel a sense of worth. Mm, that was the first one. Yeah, the other area is race equality. So I'm engaged in a lot of work at the moment with schools in in Hertfordshire, the part of the country where I'm working, and with leaders across the country on how we support schools to be really effective anti-racist institutions. So, you know, having written a book on disadvantaged learners and particular sort of economic disadvantage, I've got a strong feeling my next book will be around race equality and how school leaders can support those who are disadvantaged by underrepresentation in terms of ethnicity. Wonderful. Rachel McFarn, thank you so much for your time today. The more I get into schools and exploring school, school change and, and kind of positive impacts upon education, the more I learn about the importance of what school leaders do in terms of setting the direction for schools, building teams, having a clear vision and things like that. And so I am always just incredibly inspired when I meet school leaders and people that support school leaders to do that. And especially when they do it with a a really broad vision of what education can be and what education should be, uh, rather than just chasing, you know, high scores, which I think is something that many, many people just measure themselves on, you know, with blinkers on to to all the other things um, that happen when we, when we blindly do, do, do that. And Jung Jiao has spoken a lot about that uh, on the podcast previously, the side effects in education. So, Reading your book was inspiring. Hearing you on James Mannion's podcast was inspiring. Speaking to you today has been really inspiring as well, Rachel. I'm really grateful there are people like you in the world working on this really important work, and I'm really grateful you've given up some of your time today to chat with us and explore these issues more. It's been really enjoyable. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ETRIPLUP podcast with Rachel McFarlane. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of the links to the John Cow website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from John Cow. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd love to hear on the ETRIPLUP podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ETRIPLUP episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning.